Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 8th, we're studying Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. On Monday of Holy Week, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem to deal with matters that he'd observed in the temple the previous day. His encounter with a fruitless fig tree that bookends his actions in the temple provide a bit of commentary on what Jesus does there in the temple. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be back, Pastor Apple. How are things with you? We are doing well. We survived the cold snap in February and uh, happy to study God's word with you today. Well, good. Hopefully you're all melted out of that big storm. Look, looked bad watching that, but yes, God the, does provide. That's right. The Lord was merciful, and we continue to pray for those neighbors of ours who are still in need and seek to show the Lord's love to them. So, Pastor Zimmerman, in Mark chapter 11, we've begun Holy Week with the text we looked at last time. What do we need to know about the context? Mark is a whole particular to Holy Week also that'll help us with the verses we've got today. Sure, that's a good question to start. Contact is always a good good place to start when we're looking at the scriptures. I know we always look at them as snippets often in our readings, but you know they're they're telling a long story, a long uh, story is not the right word, a long account uh, of what Jesus has done. And I remember reading at one point, and I can't remember the author who talked about it, uh, but the idea that the gospels are kind of like. Um, biographies of Jesus with long passion accounts tacked on to them. And the focus, of course, of the Gospels is not just to give us a biography of Jesus, but to really emphasize his salvation that he brings to us through his atoning work. And, of course, Holy Week is the week, the, the most important eight days that we would say in the, in the world's uh, existence. And we could talk about you know, the seven days of creation being important, but it's these eight days where the fallen creation is reconciled, it is redeemed. And that's what Jesus does during Holy Week. So when we look at the beginning of Holy Week, we emphasize Palm Sunday, and most of our churches emphasize that in our worship, uh, the Palm Sunday processions that we do, and, you know, the singing of the same songs that the uh, pilgrims sang as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, in Mark's gospel, talking about the coming kingdom of our father David. And, and that's great. It's, it's almost like a high point. And then we all talk about Thursday and Friday, uh, because we'll have our worship services on Holy Thursday and Good Friday, where, where these big events in Christ's life happen. But there are some other days in Holy Week which are important to understanding the identity of Jesus, to understand the authority that Jesus was carrying, and to also understand what was happening as we're going to transition from the things to which the Lord laid out in the Old Testament being fulfilled by Jesus, 
and some statements of judgment that Jesus makes, and then opening up what's going to inaugurate this new age that Jesus brings in as he dies to atone for the sins of the world and rises to life again to open up life everlasting for all his believers and how there is a little bit of a shift in what's going to happen among the Lord's people um, as that has been completed. And so these events that happen during Holy Week before Thursday and Friday help us understand exactly who this Jesus is, what he's going to accomplish, and then what he does accomplish, and then what we get to look forward to as his believers. Yeah. That's a good point that we sometimes do neglect, at least liturgically, we neglect the events between Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday, but they do occupy a decent amount of space in the Gospels. And so it is good for us to know what has happened and particularly how that informs us who this Jesus is that does suffer, die, and rise beginning with the events of Monday Thursday. These events that we're going to look at today are going to help us know more about who that that man is and and what's i think in particular in mark mark's gospel is that i mean starting with well really the text we looked at with palm sunday and moving into this whereas previously in mark's gospel you have a lot of jesus saying be quiet don't say anything yet right now there's a huge shift that's happened the events of palm sunday involved this huge crowd and now jesus really goes into i mean the heart of it all and he's going to do something rather noticeable, to put it mildly. And so you can see even in Jesus' own ministry how the moment has changed. Something something is happening here that's really important. And and as readers of Mark's gospel, we should pay attention. So, Absolutely. And just, just tack on one thing with what you said there. It's going to be able to say things publicly, and it's going to really boil down to is what do you say about Jesus? Yep. That's going to be the question that these things— these things answer. Right. Which, I mean, you know, think about back at that uh, pretty pivotal moment in Mark's gospel, when that was the question that Jesus posed to his own disciples, you know, he asked them, what are others saying about me? And then what about you? Who do you Mm -hmm. say that I am? And that's when he first plainly tells them the events of this week. And now the events of this week are actually happening. And that public nature comes out so that now everyone can give answer to that question. What do you say about Jesus? And the, the answer that Mark is moving us toward is going to happen at the very end in chapter 15 when the centurion sees Jesus die on the cross and he confesses, truly, this is the Son of God. I mean, so we're, we're yeah. really seeing that yeah. just move toward that grand climax that Mark has for us. And we need to know everything that happens in there. So we're going to look at some events early on in Holy Week today. We're in Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, 
Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's the text for today, Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. So, Pastor Zimmerman, the first couple of verses set the scene. It's the following day. They came from Bethany. That's one thing that I think sometimes we forget about Holy Week is that Jesus doesn't spend the night in Jerusalem. He goes back and forth from Jerusalem to the outskirts of town where he's actually spending the night. So just help us set the scene here with Jesus' initial trip into Jerusalem and this matter of the fig tree. Okay. So if we recall the events of Palm Sunday, the emphasis in Mark's gospel is that you have, and it's all the gospels, to, to be honest, is you have this recognition of Jesus, at least by some, uh, and exactly how many of the people, uh, that he is the Christ who has coming, the Messiah who's coming in the Lord's name. And there is this, the prayers of Hosanna in the highest, and, and we have that. But, but that day comes to an end, um, and it's Passover week. As you might remember, Passover is not just a one day. I mean, there is the one day emphasis of the Passover night, but it, but it's a whole week where you're going to have the pilgrims coming in. They're going to be present in Jerusalem and its precincts, and they're going to go through all the all the rituals and rites of Passover. And Jesus and his disciples are no different. They are going to do that. But like those pilgrims, they don't stay in Jerusalem. You have them staying on the outskirts or, or camping outside of the city, at least for part of the week of Passover. And that's what Jesus does. If we go back to verse 11 of this chapter, we see that Jesus, after the triumphal entry, after the, the palm procession, he goes into the temple and he looks around, but it's later in the day. And so, you know, sundown is going to be coming. And so when sundown comes, you, you leave the city and you go back to where you were kind of lodging uh, during that time. And Jesus does that in Bethany. And we know things about Bethany because that's a town on the outskirts of Jerusalem where Jesus had been before. It's the town where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. It's also the town where you have Simon the leper, who it was one of the people that Jesus apparently had helped, and uh, it's a follower of Jesus where, where he lives. And so it's a great place for Jesus whenever he's going down to Jerusalem for any of the uh, pilgrim events like Passover to, to stay. And so Jesus does that. But what's interesting is you look at verse 11 and you get the kind of the the idea that something was going to happen in Jerusalem. 
It couldn't happen that day, but it's going to happen the following day. And now in the reading that we had for this broadcast, we take a look that Jesus goes back into Jerusalem from Bethany. And as he's going in, there's going to be now the opportunity for him to do in the city what he couldn't do the previous day. But before he does that event, and you're right, I mean, verse 11 really just kind of leaves you hanging a little bit. Like, what's he going to do? What's What does he see? What's he going to do? And Mark's going to get there. But before Jesus gets to the temple, he passes by a fig tree. And this is one of those places in the Gospel of Mark where we see Mark create a a sandwich of sorts, where he starts an an account, this account of the fig tree, but before he finishes it, he puts something in the middle. And what's in the middle is this cleansing of the temple, and then he's going to finish the account of the fig tree, which invites us to compare the two and to see what one says about the other. So we've, we've got one of those structures here in the Gospel of Mark, and it starts with this matter of Jesus passing by a fig tree, He's hungry, which, I mean, Jesus is a man, so he's hungry. That makes sense. Is there is there more to this than just physical hunger? Yeah, I, I think we should probably look at it as more than just physical hunger. It's, it's not as if Jesus never got physically hungry. In fact, when we, when we talk about his temptation, when he's out in the, uh, the wilderness for 40 days and has not eaten anything, that's one of the big emphases, that he actually is hungry. Oh, the stomach growling, you know, completely. But here it's it's perhaps a little bit unexpected that Jesus would show up the following day from the place where he had been lodging, especially if he had been lodging with friends like Mary and Martha Lazarus or or Simon the leper, that he would immediately be hungry. Uh, It's like, well, did he not eat that day? Well, it's possible. I mean, that is possible, but it's also made possible that we want to look at this incident as not plain on the physical here, but on a symbolic aspect. Remember, Jesus will use that term about being hungry as an idea of, or a con- using it as a concept of people desiring something. Our, our, our listeners might be familiar with like the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, it's not that they want to fill their stomach with righteousness, but it's a way of talking about a craving, wanting something, desiring something. And I think that that might be the way to look at this because of what happens with this fig tree. Hmm. Jesus is desiring something when he's come to Jerusalem. What the people said about him on Palm Sunday is what he would like everyone in Jerusalem to say. But as, as we know from the other Gospels, not everybody says that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the one who's coming in the Lord's name. There's a whole mess of people in Jerusalem who don't believe anything like that. In fact, they believe the exact opposite of that. And so when you have Jesus coming into Jerusalem where he's going to cleanse the temple— where he's going to fulfill all the things which the Lord had promised, we can look at this incident with the fig tree. It's almost like a, a parable in actions, in physical actions, a, a symbolic thing which is taking place, in particular, 
because of some of the details that Mark gives us about this tree, this specific tree that Jesus looks at and interacts with. Right. And I think, I mean, even Jesus actually does speak a parable with a fig tree, not here in Mark, but in Luke chapter 15, no, excuse me, Luke chapter 13. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about a man with a fig tree who, who went looking for fruit. And so I, I think, you know, to connect those, although they're, they're different things, right? That's a parable. This is something that did happen. But to connect those two, I, I think is appropriate so that when Jesus is hungry, sure, he, he might be physically hungry. I mean, I've got I've got kids who eat breakfast and then they want to eat right after that anyway. So, yeah, second you know, breakfast. Right? Exactly. So, I mean, you know, he, he could be looking for second breakfast or there could be more going on. And again, I think with these details that Mark gives us, plus the way he structures this this whole account and puts more after the account of the cleansing of the temple, invites this reflection. So, the details that Mark gives, he says that this fig tree is in leaf. Jesus goes to look for the fruit. It's not the season for fruit. He, he doesn't actually see anything but leaves. How do those details help us to to look at what Jesus does and and see a, a matter of him teaching something by this action? Sure. So when we look at these details, the fig tree itself is used already in the scriptures, in the old, what we call the Old Testament, as a comparison with the Lord's people, Israel, uh, and then in the divided kingdom, Israel or Judah. So... So the Lord's people are compared to fig trees somewhat frequently, in particular in a series of prophetic statements of judgment that the Lord issues through his prophets, like uh, Jeremiah or Hosea or Micah. And if we hearken back to those Old Testament prophetic statements about fig trees that that are made, which again are prophetic statements being made about the Lord's people, you will find some statements like in Jeremiah where where the Lord says, when I would gather them, there's no grapes on the vine, there's no no figs on the fig tree, uh, even the leaves are withered. Another time uh, when the Lord speaks, again, a a prophetic statement of judgment against his people, uh, this time through the prophet Micah, he talks this way. He says, like, woe is me, I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. And then the prophet goes further and starts discussing the character of the people and, 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 and how they're evil. Even the leaders, they, 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 they look for bribes, they, they utter the evil desires in their soul. They, they, what they love has been shifted from uh, devotion to Yahweh the Lord to other things. And he says, now the day of punishment's come. Now's the time when there's a bit of a reckoning. And though we don't always think of Jesus' events in Holy Week as being perhaps a time of reckoning or judgment, there is an aspect of them that is. I know we always like to focus on the atoning work he does and the resurrection, because that's, that's the heart of our faith. That, that, that's where we find our hope. But there are statements that he issues during Holy Week which are really echoes of those Old Testament prophetic judgments that were issued against the Lord's people, which are a call for the people to change. Mm. 
if they would heed them. That's always the big question. Will they? Right. And I mean, I think that that becomes a question that is evident asking to those very religious leaders as this as Mark continues, we're going to see those religious leaders come to Jesus and there's going to be some pretty strong confrontations. The The religious leaders are going to ask tough questions, or at least what they think are tough questions. And Jesus is going to respond in notes of judgment throughout. And yet in each one, that note of judgment, you, you just get the sense from Jesus that he is speaking that way, not just to like put them in their place or something like that but rather that they would repent for the same reason that the prophets speak very harshly to Israel when there are no figs on the fig tree in hopes that they would repent. Jesus is going to do the same thing for those people who reject him, even as he knows what's going to happen at the end of the week. He's still reaching out with that word, still scattering the seed to go back to the parable of the sower in Mark chapter four. He's still doing that. Even, even in these words of judgment that we're going to see. Now, we kind of get a, a picture here already of what what's happening because Jesus says to this fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. I, wow. I mean, what, what, a, what a strong way to speak to a, a tree. Yeah, um, it is directed exactly at what a tree is supposed to to do yeah. or supposed to be. I mean, and Jesus uses this before, uh, uh, that, that, that concept, right? I mean, you, you tell people by the fruit they bear, right? Mm. The, the good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. I mean, th- this, this, is, this is something that all the people could understand. They know that's what trees are supposed to be. And so when, when Jesus says to a fruit tree, let no one ever eat fruit from you again, it's really going to say, mm. what? I, as, as the creator, right? Remember always that Jesus is the Lord incarnate. As the one who designed trees to give their fruit in season, right? That, that's in the creation account. Hmm. What I designed you to be, called you to be, I am removing from you. Because a fruit tree that will never have people eat fruit from it again is either that... He's going to prevent people from ever encountering that tree with fruit on it, or that tree which was supposed to bear fruit, well, it's not going to exist <laughs> anymore. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's going to shrivel up and die, which is exactly what happens to the tree itself, as we'll see a little bit later in our text as we talk about the verse when they come back the next day. Right. So, I mean, this is, I think this is an important point that in telling the fig tree, let no one ever eat fruit from you again, he's taking away the vocation of being a fig tree. The the vocation of being Mm -hmm. a fig tree is to bear figs. And now that's completely gone, which, I mean, spoken to a fig tree, okay, what does that have to say about, I mean, how does that begin at least to open up what Jesus is going to do in cleansing the temple? And, and then the way that they see these words actually fulfilled, as you said, later in the text. Sure. So the big kind of question is going to be, are there anything, is there anything else during Holy Week where Jesus is going to be removing vocation or, or calling or, or what it had been dedicated to do? Is Jesus ever going to remove some of that from anything else during Holy Week? 
as we read through the Gospels, we find out, yes, he does. There's going to be the cleansing of the temple and statements about the purpose the temple was supposed to have. And then when we get to the crucifixion of Jesus, we're going to have the temple, you know, the curtain torn in two. Jesus, even before that, we'll talk about the temple being torn down and removed. And then later, not in the section that we're going to read and, and consider today, but that in a near future broadcast, our listeners will hear when we start talking about Jesus and the parable of the tenants and then the, 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 um, the, the vineyard given to other people and things like that, is that there is this kind of thing about people who had a, a calling or a vocation that they were supposed to fulfill, which included ultimately having those promises that the Lord made to them about sending his Christ to them. And it's going to be removed from them as they do not fulfill that vocation or they do not receive uh, the promises which the Lord uh, does for them. I think this is... And in this case, it could be... Yeah, so when we think of the fig tree itself and its use as a comparison with the nation of Israel, I think this is where we might start seeing this kind of an acted parable or an acted prophecy that might be the key that starts to unlock this. And I think, I mean, I think what's important about this is you were talking at the very beginning about how, you know, we often know what happens on Palm Sunday and then we kind of skip forward in our minds to Monday, Thursday. What's important about recognizing what's going on right here at the very beginning of Holy Week on, on Monday of Holy Week is, is to see this, that Jesus is, taking and just to use the temple as at least part of it he's going to to show that the temple is not going to be the place where you're going to look for the fruit i mean where where what's the reality the reality is that the temple is jesus body and, and when you want to go to the place where god dwells where do you go not to this building in jerusalem which has become corrupt for a variety of reasons which we'll talk about on the other side of the break but where are you going to go? You're going to go to Jesus, the one who has made the once for all sacrifice for you. And so seeing, I mean, this text at the very beginning of Holy Week really gives us, I, I think, a helpful picture through which to, to see the events of Holy Week and to, to show how Jesus is doing something here that's going to be better or be the fulfillment of all these Old Testament things that God had given his people in the temple, in the sacrifices, and, and so forth. And we can pick more of that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. i got Pastor Luke Zimmerman looking at Mark 11 with us. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 8th. We're looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. We have Pastor Luke Zimmerman with us. He serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' initial interaction with a fig tree on the way into Jerusalem on Monday of Holy Week. He speaks to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He's going to take away the vocation of being a fig tree from this fig tree. Before Mark actually tells us what happens to that fig tree, he gives us the account of Jesus getting to the temple. Again, as you said, he was there yesterday on Palm Sunday, but it was too late for him to do anything. And now this momentous occasion comes. Jesus gets to Jerusalem and what happens? What does he do when he goes to the temple? Uh, He finds what he doesn't want to see in it. It, it's 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 not that there aren't worshipers or there or there, or there aren't faithful people, um, and I think also we need to remember, even with the references to the Old Testament statements of judgment that would be brought by those prophets against the temple and and against the leaders, it's not as if every person in Judah or every person in Israel was was an unbeliever or 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 something like that. Yes, there were faithful people who were coming to Jerusalem. Um, to remember the Lord's great act of Passover. To the, they're coming there because they're pious people. They, they're believing the Lord's promises. They, 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 they're looking for the Messiah who is to come. Uh, some of them are coming from a long way, and it might be you know the first time they've been back in Jerusalem for, for years or decades uh, as they were able to do so. Not everyone could return to Jerusalem for those great festivals. And so when Jesus sees like pilgrims and things in there, he's, he's not he's not upset at that at all. He, he would actually be very happy to see that, especially the ones maybe singing the songs of ascents and those psalms that spoke about what the Lord would do. But when he goes there and then also sees the temple grounds having become a marketplace, the temple grounds, which had been designated as holy, set aside being a place where the Lord would interact with his people, where, where the Lord's people would offer prayer and sacrifice to him, where the great gifts of salvation and forgiveness would be bestowed, and that he sees things which don't belong, he gets quite angry and upset at it. And this is what we see happening in verses 15 and 16, the actions of Jesus here. He comes into the temple, and he sees all sorts of people buying and selling things. He sees money changers there. Those aren't really to be in the temple. The the temple actions were not to be a place of exchange. They were not to be a a place of commerce. Yes, it's true, there would be people who would need to have the animals for sacrifice, especially if they came from a long way away. You might not bring your lambs or pigeons or, or things like that all the way from, you know, parts of Italy or Northern Africa or, or Mesopotamia with you. That, sure, but they don't need to be done in the temple grounds themselves. Mm-hmm. And then verse 16 is always kind of interesting uh, when, when you read it and you're trying to figure out what exactly is that referring to. He says that, that Jesus wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. It's like, well, what, what's that all about? And, and you start looking at the words, and it, and it starts talking about, it's almost like people are 
it's almost like they're using the temple grounds as a shortcut. Hmm. It's like, well, I need to get to the other side of, you know, I need to take something from one part of Jerusalem to another, and it's easier to walk through the temple grounds with my cargo than it is to go around it. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I really fail to remember any place in the, um, in the scriptures that spoke about, uh, spoke about you know the Lord dedicating a, a, a bypass highway through <laughs> through His temple. I mean, you know, it's like these are not like the express lanes, you know, uh, in, like down in Houston or things like that. That's right. right? This, is, this, is, this is not what they're supposed to be using. And so you see that this place there had been dedicated for such a wonderful purpose, and, and the very fact that the Lord, the Lord, brings Himself to these places. I mean, it's amazing that the the, the the Lord, who does not need a building, he, he does not need anything built with hands, yet deigns to bring Himself to a location so that He could interact with His people which is a marvelous and gracious and merciful act. And people have now turned this into something just, just, just not in line with it. Mm. And so the Lord is himself now, who has suddenly come to his temple, as, as the prophet would say, mm. is there, and he is restoring it, at least symbolically, mm. uh, by the actions he does, by driving out those who sold and those who bought, and overturning the tables of the money changers and, and those who sold the pigeons. And now he then speaks two quotations from the from what we call the Old Testament. Two two quotations from the scriptures and says, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Mm-hmm. By going back there by pulling those statements out from what we call the Old Testament, from those prophetic books, he is linking himself to those judgment statements which were made in previous times. But he's also opening up something else. He's also opening up what's going to happen where will there be a temple or a house of prayer for all the nations? How will the Lord be accessible? Because once the Lord Jesus completes his acts in Holy Week, once he fulfills the Lord's promises of that covenant, he is now going to open up another way or a new way how the people will interact with him, which will no longer be one particular building in Jerusalem. But it will be wherever this Lord incarnate says he will be found. And that's where our listeners can go back to all the statements about where two or three people are gathered in my name, I will be in the midst of them. Or we can think of the commissioning texts that the Lord Jesus will give to his apostles after he is raised from the dead and before he ascends to heaven and talks about 
them going out and making disciples of all nations, preaching good news to all creation, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name, retaining or loosing sins, which is no longer going to be done in one stone building in Jerusalem, but it's going to be wherever the Lord Jesus's authority is placed as he wills it. You know, and everything that should have been happening in this stone building when Jesus enters into it on Monday of Holy Week, it should have been pointing to that reality. The sacrifices that should have been taking place in there, the prayers that should have been taking place in the way that God had ordained them, all of that was meant to preach the reality of Jesus, the one who would come to be that once for all sacrifice, to be our great high priest. And so the fact that none of that is happening, or that's not the the main event that's happening there, as you said, there are faithful Israelites who are who are doing what is right, who are listening to the word of God and attempting to, to do and to believe those things that he has given. But on the whole, that's not what's going on. That means none of that preaching that should have been happening in those events of who Christ is and of what he was going to come to do in his death and resurrection, none of that was taking place. And instead you have this, this picture almost of a like a religious tourism of sorts, you know, like it's just a, it's a nice building. I'm going to go see it. I'm maybe going to buy a few souvenirs. I mean, that may sound a little crass. I'm just going to pass through it on the way, but that, I mean, none of those original purposes for which it was given, which all were to preach Christ crucified and risen. None of that is happening. And so Jesus, I mean, Jesus rightly, rightly gets upset is a, is a mild word for what he is. Yeah, and there's applicability to our day. I mean, don't don't think of this as like we're going to be <clears throat> immune from it. I mean, we could we could turn uh, we can we could turn you know Christmas travel and things into mm-hmm. thing and that that holiday into something very much other than you know worshiping and thanking God for for the sending of His Son for the for the you know the great mystery of the incarnation. We could turn Easter. Into you know Easter break, Easter bunnies, Easter chocolates, all mm. all these things without ever talking about you know the great resurrection of the Lord Jesus that opens up you know everlasting life and and paradise for us. That's the those are the emphases of these festivals that we even keep in our New Testament time. But but we could lose the purpose of those too. We could also turn the churches into things that aren't places that proclaim Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. And we can turn the churches into just kind of community groups. We can turn them into just organizations, which might do some good things, but is the heart of the matter there? Yeah. Is, the, is the real purpose for which we've been called being done? And if it's not, then we need to hear these words of Jesus or the words of the Lord given earlier or, or in the Old Testament or other places in the New Testament and come back to understanding what is our real calling, what are we really here to be, and have that become the primary purpose of our lives. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a really important point, that this text is more than just don't count money in the church building. You know, I mean, there's probably a good reason not to do that, but this text is, is far bigger than that. What is, and I think this is where the fig tree comes back in, you know, what, what is your vocation as Christian? What is your vocation as, as church? What does it mean to be a Christian congregation and to bear the fruit that God has given you to bear? It, it is to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. And when that main thing isn't the main thing, 
Jesus' words calling us to repentance should be ringing in our ears so that we would repent and and trust in him and and be given that fruit that comes from remaining in him. And so, yeah, a very, very applicable text for us as the church still today. Now, the chief priests and the scribes, they hear this, they're witness to this, and that's a pretty important thing as the Gospel of Mark will continue because it does seem that this event really uh, triggers them. I guess that's that's how we would say it today. It, it triggers them. <laughs> Take us into to the reaction of the, the religious leaders to what Jesus does. Yeah, triggering is exactly what has happened here. The chief priests and scribes mentioned here in Jerusalem are, are tied to the temple. Uh, that's, that's what they're about. That, that's their livelihood. That's their, that's their vocation. They're supposed to be the keepers of this holy place. And, and apparently they have had no problem with these um, activities going on in there. Uh, they could have said, no, you can't do these things here, but they must have given their permission. And we'll see later in the events of Holy Week the kind of the question of authority that gets asked. These are the people who are supposed to be bearing that authority and using it to guide the Lord's people in what is good and right, and instead they are not. And when they see Jesus coming and hear Jesus teaching about these things uh, and, and seeing that they're actually being criticized by him and being pointed out by him, and his actions, they are not happy to see it. They are not happy to hear it. Instead, they try to figure out how can we destroy him, which is quite the word there. You know, uh, for, our, for our Greek people, the apolumi word, you know, I mean, to, to, to just, just to get rid of completely destroy. And they do so because they fear him. Not because they fear him in the fear, love, and trust way that we speak about, but fearing him because they're afraid. They see what he's doing and how it could actually cost them. They see what he's doing and see how it could actually sway everybody to receive him and welcome him and acknowledge him, and they want no part of that. Yet, because... Many in the crowd was astonished at his teaching because there were people hearkening to what he was saying. We could almost even maybe envision, might there have been people, you know, uh, nodding their heads or, or showing applause at what Jesus was doing. And, there, and, the, and the chief priests and scribes would look at it and say, oh, this is not good. He has sway over the people, which is going to keep us from just grabbing him, yanking him out of the temple, dragging him outside of the city and stoning him. We can't do that because the crowds are not going to permit it. But we've got to do something with this Jesus of Nazareth guy, because now he's moved not from Galilee up in the old backwater Israel not in the rural parts of Judea. He's brought it right here in our main city. He's brought it to our house. But the issue is, it's not their house. It's actually the Lord's house. All, All of that, I mean, so much of what you just said really sets the stage for what we're going to see happen during Holy Week as it progresses again in that time period before we get to Holy Thursday and and how, I mean, just from a, a human perspective, 
as you're reading along here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus really does have the upper hand. And you can see why the chief priests and the scribes would have reacted with this kind of fear. I mean, they really have been pretty passive up to this point as Mark is recounting it. And it's not going to be until we get to the text for tomorrow that they're going to try to come at him with some kind of a counterattack. But but again, as, as we'll see, you know, Jesus continues to to gain or to hold the upper hand. And I'm, again, I'm speaking more from a human perspective here. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, it's it's just like you can you can see why the the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests are going to react this way because Jesus has brought it to them. And again, there's that that shift from everything in in really the first part of Mark where Jesus is saying, "Not now, be quiet, don't go say anything." And here all of a sudden, boom, he's here, he's throwing the gauntlet down, and and the scribes, the the chief priests are kind of struggling with what to do. They're going to line up a few attacks. None of them are, are going to stick, as we will see. We're trying to take too much thunder. But mm-hmm. but again, I mean, you just you see how how things have really climax or becoming a climax here very quickly during Holy Week. So yeah, and, and go it's going to do real quick with this. It's like it, which is going to drive the emphasis though. Um, that when Jesus actually does perform his great act of atoning, it's because he's going to allow it to happen. Right. He's not going to exercise the earthly power sway he may have had there of being a demagogue or having all the crowds riled up. And, and we'll see that, especially when we get into the events like in Gethsemane and, and then forward. Right. I mean, I think noticing that helps us when we get to those texts where, again, from a human perspective, it seems like the tables turn, that that no longer does Jesus have the upper hand when you get to the evening of Monday, Thursday, and he's betrayed. And then, you know, events, again, from a human perspective, spiral mm-hmm. out of control very quickly. Having seen this part of Holy Week, we recognize who really is in charge here, you know, who really is directing the events. It is our Lord, who, by the way, before he ever got into Jerusalem— had predicted three times precisely what was going to happen to him. And we're seeing it happen to him, you know, under his own direction. And so, I mean, yeah, we, we want to, we want to hold on to that as the events of Holy Week continue. Now, as, as Mark continues, he comes back to the fig tree. So into verses 20, looks like we're on a new day now with verse 20. This is going to be Tuesday morning uh-huh. now, and they come by the fig tree again. They're going to go back into Jerusalem. There's the fig tree and... Oh, it's withered to the root. Sounds like, I mean, there's nothing left, basically, of this fig tree. And Peter comments, hey, look, Jesus, there it is. That's the one you were talking about. What is what is the disciples noticing? And then how does Jesus teach them based on what they see? Okay, so this is the same tree. And it's, it's important to note that. Uh, it's important to remember what had been said uh in the first part of the bracket, if you will, right? Remember we talked about the fig tree incident is bracketing the, the temple cleansing. So the disciples heard what Jesus had said to that tree, let, you know, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And so now when they come back the next day and look at the tree and it's completely withered and gone, Peter remembers it. Peter absolutely remembers it because we were told the disciples actually heard what Jesus had said. And so now kind of the question is, what caused this? Well, the, it becomes clear it is what Jesus said that has caused this fig tree to wither and die. And that's important. This wasn't like some like instant blight or something, some strange fig tree disease that we never encounter ever again. Okay, no, this is, this is a direct action from what Jesus had spoken there. But now the question is, where are we supposed to learn from this? Mm. 
Is it is it because Jesus gets mad when when there's no figs on a fig tree? Well, no. But if we remember the symbolic aspect of this, if we think of it as an enacted parable or enacted prophecy, we need to look at this. We're going to say that the fig tree, which had the calling to bear figs, that's what the fig trees are supposed to do. That's what the Lord created them to do. That's what the Lord assigned them to do. Now this fig tree no longer has that calling. What are we supposed to do? What would retain calling? And this is where Jesus then says, in reply to Peter, have faith in God. And it's like, okay, well, well, what does that mean? Well, having faith in God was ultimately what Israel was called to do, called to be. And having faith in God would include putting all your trust in him, having him be the object of your love and devotion, carrying out the things which he had given you to do. And God's judgment had been leveled against his people before when that was not taking place, when they had abandoned such faith in him, had become devotees of like Baal or other gods in the past perhaps here in the sense of the temple had become lovers of money instead of lovers of the Lord's law and the Lord's words, which the chief priests and scribes were supposed to be dedicated to or seeking out a different type of Messiah, thinking of a different kingdom, trying to establish something else like maybe the zealot party was trying to do. And instead now Jesus is calling his people back to have faith and trust in him. And that perhaps Israel as a dedicated nation had served its purpose as the Messiah has now come and he's now opening up things, uh, the calling to be his people to other things than just the fig tree, but maybe all the trees of the forest kind of representing all the nations. Right. I mean, the idea of, or to use Paul's language of, of grafting the wild shoots into the, the natural branch, right? That, mm-hmm. that, you know, you get this, this picture that, and I think this is where, I mean, what, what we were saying earlier is very helpful. That so what Jesus has just done in saying to this building, this temple, you know, no, not, not here anymore. The disciples now are getting an answer, well, well, where? And again, this is going to be fleshed out during Holy Week, particularly in chapter 13, when Jesus speaks mm-hmm. more fully about the temple. But the, the question of where, well, it is in those who continue to trust in God. That is those who, who trust in God as he's revealed himself in this man, in Jesus Christ, who is God and man. And so, I mean, you, you see, the, again, that shift taking place here. In, in what's happening with the fig tree combined with what has just happened in the temple. Pastor Zimmerman, we have four minutes and there's okay. like a lot of words still. <laughs> so help okay. us into, into, I mean, Jesus, then he begins to speak a little bit about prayer and, and maybe some potential for misunderstanding with four minutes. Help us to, to see what's here in these words, wrap things up for us this morning on this wonderful text. Sure. So the, the, the section that we're looking at closes with some statements that Jesus makes about praying, and it's important that when he is setting up this, these statements of prayer, he's talking about what the pious people of God do. The pious people of God interact with him through praying. 
That is one of the things he actually instructs us to do. It's what's supposed to have happened in the temple. It was not supposed to be a marketplace. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. But the Lord has not removed that task of praying, even if it's not going to be done in one particular building anymore. The Lord's people going forward will still have the calling, the assignment to pray to him. And not only to pray to him, but to expect the Lord to answer what they ask him to do. In fact, when the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he gives them a whole series of petitions that all of us call the Lord's Prayer now. But they're all things that not only are we to ask God to do, and we don't have to tack if it be your will to it, because he's told us it is his will for us to ask such things. And not only is it his will for us to ask such things, it's his will to complete such things for us, to do such things for us as we ask him. When he tells us, ask for this, pray for this. And so when we pray, we should be expectant. We should be anticipating that what we ask the Lord to do when he's given us the commands to ask him, that that he will actually answer them including things that really require divine action to take place. I mean, removal of sins is not something that we do as humans. That's something God does. But when we pray that our sins be forgiven, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, we should anticipate that the Lord actually will forgive us. Also, in the teaching that he gives about prayer, He notes that wherever or whenever you stand praying, we are to forgive. And that's important. If we have anything against anyone, we are to forgive them. That aspect of forgiveness is what Jesus' whole ministry is about, to to accomplish what is necessary so that we might be made right with God, so that our guilt might be removed, but then also that we might be able to forgive those who sin against us. And so part of praying... Um, and part of our interaction as the holy people of God is to forgive the others who have wronged us. And he says that the, our Father who is in heaven may also forgive us our trespasses, which is very similar to what Jesus teaches in the other Gospels, including the, you know, the great parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. This is essential, that the forgiveness of believers, that forgiveness takes place within the community of believers, because that's what the church is authorized to do, proclaiming and and distributing that forgiveness that Christ earned, and then it's also to be not just from God to us, but it's also then to be shown from us to our, especially to our fellow believers, uh, who who, who are uh, receiving uh, God's benefits, and ultimately, we even forgive our enemies, those who might be outside of the church. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is the pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Pastor Zimmerman, thanks for being our guest today. Very welcome. Glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question about Mark chapter 11 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again tomorrow.